ladies, I'm so privileged to be able to speak to you from um, this sacred area. You notice we are in a little different space this week because we're getting some of the things with our flooring here redone. So um, just pray that it, that it is done correctly and done well and that we will not have to revisit this issue again. But we are so grateful um, to just have the resource to be able to do this um, that is being taken care of for us. So nevertheless, um, just grateful to God to be back here to bring you the word one more time. Now, on last week, um, I think we all remembered the the God's justice versus social justice sermon. And, and I was really encouraged by uh, much of the feedback that I got from so many of the members and even people who are not members of the church who understood just what the implications truly are of God's true justice that that eventually in our lives will outweigh any attempt of justice that we try to commit in our own lives. And so in that, we learned last week that the perfect righteous justice of God, of God, comes solely from God, sovereignly, individually, from God. Now, with that being said, however, I didn't want to seem obtuse or nonchalant or unaware about the reality that there are many real afflictions and infirmities and conditions that many of us deal with at various times in our lives. I didn't want to be obtuse to the fact that we are all at various times wondering in confusion about where God is in our lives, that there are very real times in our lives that God absolutely does not feel near to us. We don't feel near to him. We do not, we cannot conceive him. We cannot, we cannot perceive where he is. There are real times in the life of every believer that that happens. And I want to offer you comfort today that if you are feeling that or if you have felt that in your life, you are not alone. You are in great company. The great men and women of the Bible have all at various times felt like God was quite distant from them in their own lives. Your own pastor who is talking to you right now at various times, even as a pastor, has felt that God wasn't very near in his own life. So what I want to do today is analyze one why do we feel this way are we justified in feeling this way and we're going to look directly at the text that the psalmist is writing today and see that it is a very real thing for us to deal with and we should reconcile this absolutely in our lives but we don't just let the feeling stay there and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm extremely excited to jump in the word. And, and my hope, my prayer is that today you will find comfort in the word of God, knowing that even in the times where God feels distant, where God feels like he isn't close, that he is always near to us. So let's jump today into our text. We are in Psalms chapter 10. And it reads, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. 
Let them be caught up in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments, though, are on high. Out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O oh God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the evildoer and the wicked. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that in the times that it seems like you are quite distant to us, that you are incredibly near to us, God, we pray that you in this sermon from the word will offer us so much clarity about our relationship with you and that in the end of this sermon, we will find great comfort in knowing that we are rooted in you and even when you seem so far away. You are so very near to us. It is in your master's name that we pray. Amen. So at the beginning of this text, we see that the psalmist asks two piercing questions at the, at the very beginning. He says the first question, why, why do you stand far away? And that can literally be translated in the English. Why do you remain aloof, God? Out of his despair, the psalmist asks this question, God, why do you seem as if you are unaware of what I am dealing with in my own life? He is so in need. He is so broken at this point in his life that he is questioning very clearly here the very nature of who God is. Now, this is one of the important things that we do have to understand about what happens in the Old Testament versus the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ 
in the New Testament. See, as the psalmist writes this, he does not have the full revelation of God incarnate, who is Jesus Christ, the one who God dwelled fully in bodily. See, we know that Jesus came as the full incarnation of God. He was clothed in flesh. He wrestled with every infirmity. He wrestled with every temptation, every affliction that we have all dealt with. We know that Jesus Christ wrestled with those things, even to the point that he suffered death, as we all must as well. See, he was afflicted in that way so that we would have an opportunity to have a real relationship with God the Father. Now, let me explain this. We have to understand that the reason we feel this great distance from God is that at the same time when Jesus Christ was clothed in flesh, he felt that same great distance from God as well. Now, we know this because as we mentioned a few weeks ago on the cross, he looks up and he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he has the full knowledge of who God is, being fully God, truly God himself. Yet he looks up to the Father and asks him, why do you stand aloof? Why have you forsaken me? Now, we know that he was not forsaken, but it was because of that flesh that he was clothed in that caused him to ask that question. Now, the reason we know that that question is not inherently sinful because the Bible says that Jesus knew no sin. So he asks a question based on what he feels about God in that moment. He wants to know, God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same thing that the psalmist here is asking, and I think this is the same thing that every one of us have asked in our own lives. Now, truly being God, truly being human, we see Jesus go into the Garden of Gethsemane, being fully aware of what was about to be taken upon his life, and he is sweating drops of blood so much to the point that before he even gets to the cross, he asks God, if there is any other way that you can do this, will you please let this bitter cup pass from me? But from that point on, he was then dragged all throughout the streets until he was eventually nailed on the cross. And as that pain radiated through his body, he felt the utter despair of being hopeless thinking that he had been forsaken, feeling that he had been forsaken by God. Now, I know you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with our Psalms text? Well, just look at it. The psalmist asks, why do you stand far away, God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God, in the moments, in the times that I need you the most, that seems to be the very time where I cannot perceive where you are. That, though, is why Jesus went through everything that he went through so that we would know that in Jesus Christ, everything that we feel he felt. Look at what Hebrews says. In Hebrews 4, 
15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see the connection here? Because Jesus Christ was the high priest and we have the high priest, our connection, our mediator to God in him. We saw him feel what we feel. We saw him endure what we endure. We saw him be tempted the way that we are tempted, yet he remained sinless. So what's the revelation that we have? The revelation that we have is that he is not this God who is sitting, standing far away, just residing over all of us who remains aloof. But he is Jesus Christ, the son of God, God incarnate, who dealt with every affliction that we now deal with. So it's not just that he stands aloof and it's not just that he feels it. But the word in Hebrews mentioned a very important word here. And it says sympathize. He can sympathize. When we look at the nature of who God is, we talked about it a few weeks ago. He created the the heavens with his fingertips. And David asks, what is man that you are even mindful of us? He's mindful of us because everything we have felt and everything we feel, he felt. Okay. That is the connection. That is how we know that he is not just standing far away looking at us when we go through, but he has endured as we have endured. Now, as I said, he doesn't just feel it, but he sympathizes with us over it. Now, why do we not collapse under the the weight of our despair? Because in Jesus, he sympathizes. He sympathizes with our affliction and our infirmities. That is why it says, let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How are we to respond, though? If that's the case... When we don't feel near to God, that brings us to the first point of the sermon. In the times that we do not feel near to God, we must remember Jesus. We must remember Jesus. That is a challenge. I know it. I understand that. Nobody understands that more than me. I have dealt with the affliction. I have dealt with the infirmity. And it is hard in those moments to look up at Jesus Christ. But in those moments, it is essential to our faith that we remember Jesus. When God seems far away, then we must do all we can to draw ourselves back into his presence. Now, how do we do that? The Bible makes it clear when we fix our minds on him and in him, we are firmly secured in what we know about him. I love how the song says it It says, always remember Jesus, 
always keep him on your mind. That is the context in the scripture when it tells us if you keep your mind firmly fixed, stayed on Jesus Christ, he will keep you in perfect peace. That that is the joy that we have is that if we focus our thoughts and our hearts rather on Jesus Christ, then when we are afflicted and when God seems near, we can look up at the cross and we can know that he endured far greater afflictions and offenses and indiscretions than we will ever do and endure down here. And then we can look at what he did and realize that what we go through, though it hurts, these are momentary light afflictions. See, if our minds are fixed on Jesus Christ, I can I can sum it up like this. You may feel alone, but you should know that you are not alone. God does not move from his fixed position in our lives. Now, the psalmist goes on in our text to outline all the habits of the wicked, and he points to how contrary they are to the way of God. He says that they are greedy. They pronounce curses. They are proud. They even deny the very existence of God. But he has one problem in the midst of all of that. He has one looming, overwhelming problem with the wicked. And he looks up at God and he says this. He says, yet with all those horrible things, with all those horrendous things that the wicked do, his way still prospers. Now, all of us would be lying if we would say we have never felt that. And that is a stunning insinuation that the psalmist makes against God here. He says that God has allowed the ruthless unrighteousness to live in luxury and prosper and find favor. We have all looked around in our own lives and we have seen that the that the wicked seem to be prospering, that the very people who are who are unrighteous seem to be living completely in peace while we who are groping and grasping at any attempt of holy living and righteousness seem to crumble in the way that the world seems to prosper. In fact, just this past week, I had a phone conversation with somebody and they, they specifically said, you know, I can't reconcile how I see all of this wickedness and it is wickedness and it has been indoctrinated into our children. It is inculcated into the movies and entertainment and those people who are leading the unrighteous charge are prospering. And theirs is the voice that everybody respects. Why does it seem that the way of the wicked prospers? I know I have looked around at other pastors or churches or people who I know are not living moral lives. And I don't understand why they still find success. That is frustrating. Not only is it frustrating, but it makes us look up at God and say, God, do you not see me? Do you not see what I am enduring and not just enduring it, God, but enduring it for your just cause? Yet 
the way of the wicked seems to prosper. How do we reconcile that? How can we reconcile when we look up at God and know that we should be prospering? Well, I will be the first one to tell you, this is the biggest condemnation of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel has to be a cursed and damned gospel because there is no truth in that we will financially or physically or any kind of way prosper here on earth. And if you know what you know about God, then you know that it makes sense that that the wicked prosper here on earth. Look at this. Let's jump to Jeremiah 12 and 1. So I, I don't want you to think that it's just me or it's just you or it's just the psalmist here. Look at Jeremiah. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous, I like that word, thrive? This feeling here, if you haven't gathered this yet, is common among believers. You are not alone in feeling this. Now, we have to answer the question. Why do the wicked prosper? Now, I can't answer specifically. I'm not like one of these false prophets who know everything else that's going on, but somehow didn't know coronavirus happened anyway. I'm not like one of these false prophets who says, I can tell you exactly why the wicked prosper. I can't specifically tell you why each individual wicked person prospers, but what I can tell you is that the Bible does answer it for us in general terms. The wicked live their lives outside of the parameters and the standards that God has set for all of man. Not only that, but they are not restricted by any sense of morality. And for that, they pursue their sin and their own prosperity unabated by any moral conscience. Now, let me sum that up for you. The wicked can be as wicked as they want to be because they have no God consciousness whatsoever. The Bible says there is none who seeks after me. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. Anybody who is not a believer has in no way, shape, form or fashion ever pursued God. They never have. And so when you are wicked, unrighteous, then you can pursue your wickedness and your unrighteousness unabated by any consciousness that God views it as wicked and wrong. They do not care about God. They do not care about God's standards. But what they don't realize is that that's not true prosperity. Being rich, being well-known, being popular, Whatever the case may be, wherever you find yourself, that is not true prosperity. I can tell you what that is. That is utter despair. Having the totality of who you are to be all that takes place on this earth. Even if you don't believe in God, you know that at some point you're going to die. Now look at here. You may think, listen, this is an inefficient answer, insufficient answer, and 
And I really am not satisfied with that. Like, I get it. Like, they're chasing their sin. But what about those of us who are chasing righteousness? Look at what Paul says here. Just, just look at it. In Romans 9, 22, he says, What if God, rhetorical question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now look at this. Now I will do my best to sum this up, to make it clear for you. But I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. He is saying that what if God, what if it's possible, just what if it's possible that God has given those who are destined for hell the freedom to make this their heaven so that the weight of his judgment in hell will crush them? <laughs> he's just saying, what if that's the case? He's not saying that is the case. And so that's what I'm saying. What if that's the case? What if God gives them heaven on earth so that they can realize how horrible this heaven was when they get to hell? That's what he says. He says, what if God has endured with much patience vessels prepared for destruction? Those are people who he knows will never be saved, yet he allows them to live freely and richly apart from him so that when they arrive in their eternal destination, they will know just how much they compromised and why they deserve to be where they are. That's one part of it. But more importantly, more importantly, and this is what Paul is saying. He says, what if God has given us his true believers now? A little glimpse of hell and despair apart from him so that when we enter eternity, we will know what great mercy and grace has been shown to us. It's two sides of the same coin. One side is giving this little poor, horrible glimpse of heaven so they can know how horrible their destination is. And we, the true righteous of God, have been given a glimpse of true despair and what it feels to be forsaken, which gives us credence to understand why on the cross, Jesus Christ felt what it felt like to be the bearer of everybody's sin. When he bore all of our sins, he felt what we would have felt, which is utter despair to be forsaken apart from God. Now, what is the reality? What he felt because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God felt what everybody else feels who rejects him. Which means, though they may prosper here on earth, what he felt, they feel for eternity. And not one second of that reality is worse or better than the previous second. It is one great moment of despair. What if God allows the wicked to prosper here so they can know how horrible of a decision they made? to reject him here. 
Listen to this. In this way, God wants to make us conform to the image of his dear son, Christ, so that we may become like him here in suffering and there in that life to come in honor and glory. So we suffer in this life so that we would be like our Lord Jesus, who also suffered in this life. Being like him here in this life, we will be like him in the life to come with honor and glory. Okay, this is a quote from Martin Luther. And when he says that he we are reminded that if we suffer like Christ, we will be raised like him in the life to come. We, though broken and in despair down here, will be in glory with him, whole and free from the very presence of sin. That's it. That's why we go through what we go through so that we can feel what he felt, but so we can also be raised into glory like he was as well. And that brings us to our second and final point for the day. The first one being we must remember Jesus. Second one being God remembers us. God remembers us as we must remember Jesus. We must remember that God remembers us. He has promised that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have a permanent comforter that lives within us. As we said a few weeks ago, God has not lost us in the rest of his creation. Moreover, we learned last week that his inevitable justice will prevail. We all remember what happened to Job when he was going through what he went through and his friends and even his wife said that there must be some sort of sin you did. This must be retributive justice of God and you are getting something that you did privately, some sin that you are harboring in your own life. In John 9, the disciples come to a man who is blind and they ask Jesus, well, who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus, however, responds, and this is what we have to understand about any affliction or infirmity we go through. He responds and he says this, that this affliction was not for the purpose of sin, but it was for the purpose of God's glory. Jesus then healed the man, and we can immediately see the glory that God gets from that man being healed. Think about it. If that man had never had the affliction, God would have never gotten the glory out of that situation. Think about what happens when Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies. Jesus has enough time to get there before he died, and he waits intentionally so that Lazarus would die. So frustrated, his sister runs out and tells him, if you had been here, he would still be living. In the in between time, though, there was this great concern and frustration that she has. If you had been here, if you had been here, he would be alive. Have we ever felt like that? God, if you had revealed this to me sooner, if you had shown up, if you had done this, if you had done that, if I had known this, God, God, if you had done this, this thing in my life would have been differently. 
It would have happened differently. It just would have been different. It wouldn't, the outcome would have changed. I would be a different person if, God, you had just done this thing different. We have all felt that. But we must understand that God uses this sense of apartness from him, this sense of being forsaken by him to draw us to him. I remember in the movie Ray, just in the time when he was really starting to lose his sight, he had fallen in the living room and he started to cry out for his mother. And as he cried out, she wanted to jump up, but she didn't. And he cried out and he cried out until eventually he calmed down. And it wasn't until he calmed down that he could actually hear. And what he heard when he calmed down in the silence is that she was right there. She was right there the whole time. When we go through what we go through and God seems distant from us, it is not so that we can know how strong we are, how independent we can be of God. It is so that we can know how weak and utterly broken and fragile we are without him. Like I said earlier, the wicked hotly pursue their sin and their wickedness, and they are devoted to living their lives without the influence of God in their own strength and according to their own way. Without the influence of God in their own strength and according to their own way, that's their plan. We, however, are to be nestled in the sweet grace of our Father. After the psalmist has called into question the motive of God, the motive of God, he is then re-energized by the truth of God. And this is where we all should desire to get. He says this, but you do see, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to you. The helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. But you do see God. That's our comfort. He is reminded that the God that we serve does in fact see without inhibitions and the helpless find themselves in the very presence of God. And not only that, but he has been a helper of those who are fatherless, who are afflicted, and who are oppressed. While we may not receive the luxury and privilege here on earth that the wicked received, there is for us being stored in eternity a treasure, a weight of glory that awaits us that moths and rust can't corrupt, that they can't destroy. We have peace with God, and that peace that we have with God is the assurance of our faith. The psalmist comes back even more emphatically and says that you do hear the desire of your afflicted. So this is the encouragement. God hears us. There is not a single prayer of the righteous that God doesn't hear. There is not a single prayer of the righteous that we offer to God that goes unanswered. 
Though it may not be the answer that we desire, the fact of the matter is this, that he hears and answers every prayer that we have. What great joy that should bring us that even in the times when we feel like we can't perceive him or hear him, he hears us. And that we can be comforted by that, that when we speak, he listens. That means that when we do feel very far, he hears our cry, he hears our petition, he hears our prayers, he knows our hearts. What an amazing God. I want you to see this, though, as we close. Without going through the despair of feeling forsaken by God, without going through the despair of feeling broken in the midst of God, the psalmist would not have fully grasped what it really means to be strengthened by God. We have known what it feels like to be apart from him, and our fondness only grows strong, and it, strong, and it only renews our relationship with God over and over and over again. That is our little glimpse of eternity. And I like how the hymn says it. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. It's just a foretaste of glory divine. In the moments that we feel the strength that God has given us in our hearts, we are giving a little foretaste of the eternal glory that is prepared for all of us. Let me give you this encouragement as we Get ready to close this sermon out. In days like these, it is natural to feel despondent and distant and far and hopeless and alone from God. But you, true believer, you are never alone. God is not far away, but he is ever near to us and he will strengthen us and he will rejuvenate us. In this final portion of the scripture, it says, you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In closing, the psalmist uses here our little popular word from last week, justice. But he, he brings justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that man who is of the earth, and that emphasis there is to contrast who God is, that the man who is of the earth not only is he of the earth, created of the earth, but his whole desire is for what happens on this earth. But God, in contrast to that, is eternal, sovereign, divine, all-knowing, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful. So even when it seems like the man who is of the earth is prevailing, remember this. I said this before, but you must remember. For the believer, this earth, is the only hell we will ever know. For the unrighteous, for the unbeliever, this is the only heaven that they will ever know. So, in that we should know, even in the times that it seems like the way of the wicked is prospering, there will come a day, as we said last week, where the wicked will prosper no more. And we will be drawn into eternal, true prosperity with Christ forever and ever. And we must remember this. How much does he love us? How much does God love us? He loves us so much that he sent his only son to a cross 
to take the penalty away that we deserve, to die on it. As John 15, 13 says, no greater love a man has than this, that he will lay down his life for his friend. And he tells us, we are those friends. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We pray, God, that we have been so encouraged by these deep truths about why we go through what we go through. God, draw us ever near, ever close into the heart of God, into your presence, God. If there is anyone at this moment who hears this and feels this great despair, God, let this sermon be a reminder of why we go through what we go through. It is to strengthen us. It is to rejuvenate us so that we will trust in you and that you will get the glory out of our lives. And God, yes, it is frustrating when we see wrong being prospered in our society, but there will come a day where we will see what true glory and prosperity is. We thank you, Lord, even in our afflictions, because they are momentary and they are light. It is in Jesus' name we pray.